You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 108. It's our party convention special. We are speaking with Gabe Morgan, Vice President of SEIU 32BJ, representing workers in Philadelphia, including Philadelphia airport workers who do not have a union yet, but they are fighting hard for one, and they are preparing to go on a potential strike at the airport during the Democratic National Convention. But first, the news. Yale University has long been embroiled in a debate over its historical ties to the institution of slavery and its own history of systemic racism. But that discourse, which has long been dominated by elite faculty, administrators, and student activists, was re-energized last month by a single act of defiance by one of Yale's workers. Corey Manafi, a custodial services worker at Calhoun College Residential Hall, was cleaning the dining room when he suddenly got the impulse to shatter an antique stained glass window depicting two enslaved black people carrying bales of cotton. In his words, one morning while on break from his cleaning shift, he saw the offensive image and said to himself, that thing has to come down. And so it did. Manafi went to the window and put his broomstick through it. The destruction of university property in the form of smashed glass changed everything for Manafi. As he recalls, he ended up losing his job, facing uh, felony charges, which were later dropped. But above all, he sparked national attention with his action, which has now become emblematic of the profound racial divides surrounding Yale's legacy of slavery, the huge socioeconomic inequities that are intertwined with structural racism and the institution of higher education, and the whole question of cultural reconciliation at one of the country's most vaunted institutions. Now, full disclosure, I'm a Yale alum, and I resided at Calhoun College, so this hits close to home. Yale, for its part, has decided not to pursue the prosecution of Manafi, and it has also promised to inaugurate a campus-wide dialogue over how to address problematic symbols like that window through reforms and redesign efforts. While Yale tinkles with its architecture, Manafi's still trying to figure out his legal issues and get reinstated in his old job. He doesn't think of himself as a political activist per se, but as he told me, the action he took as a worker stands not only as a symbol of nationwide uprising against injustice, but as a demonstration of what happens when workers take a stand on the job. Um, He, again, sees his act as uh, something that happened out of passion, but we can say that against the backdrop of all this unrest going on across the country, it's also a symbol of how workers can individually or collectively engage in political expression that extends much farther than just their workplaces. We don't know the consequences Minafi will face, but it does seem like he's inspired more people than he ever anticipated just for daring to show his discontent at work. In case you were wondering, Manafi has received strong backing from his union, Unite Here Local 35, and they support his reinstatement. And as of this Thursday, Manafi is planning to return to work. Yale has apparently allowed him to go back to his old job. He is apparently still trying to figure out his legal matters. And in case you are wondering, Manafi's union, Unite Here, has been supporting him throughout this ordeal and pushing Yale to reinstate him fully. The terms of that reinstatement are reportedly still being worked out as are Manafi's legal matters, but for now, he looks forward to starting work again on Monday. The National Labor Relations Board just handed down a new ruling that could open the door to unionization for temp workers. 
In the ruling in the case known as Miller and Anderson, the board reverted back to an earlier precedent that holds that when subcontracted workers seek to unionize at a workplace under a joint employment arrangement, that is, uh, two different workforces hired under different companies, but essentially working in the same workplace, uh, doing comparable work, and the two companies are jointly responsible for their working conditions. Under this arrangement, the board held that employer consent is not necessary for units that combine jointly employed and sold employed employees of the single employer. Okay, What that means is uh, workers can seek to unionize uh, even if they are working under various subcontracts at a single workplace. They can get together to form a collective bargaining unit as long as they show that they share a so-called community of interests. This means that they'll no longer need to seek permission from their boss first in order to exercise their right to unionize under federal law, as long as they're seeking to organize with workers who may technically be hired by different firms but essentially do the same work in a single workplace and form a community of similar interests. Of course, the industry lobby had a lot to say about this. The American Staffing Association, representing temp employers, argued that this would, quote, sow uncertainty and conflict Actually, it would primarily ensure that temp workers have the right to organize under the National Labor Relations Act, just as other workers do. And the ruling builds on a major ruling last year in Browning-Ferris, which expanded the right of subcontracted workers to organize under joint employer status. This could be a major boost for organizing efforts among the low-wage sectors in logistics, agriculture, etc., particularly for uh, workers working for Walmart supply chains and for the shipping industry that could pave the way for pushing back against the trend of labor outsourcing that we've seen in recent decades. As more and more firms seek to slash labor costs by shedding jobs and contracting out to other employers to provide ancillary services such as security and maintenance at Amazon warehouses. In the Miller decision, the board overturned an earlier precedent that restricted unionization efforts by leaving the issue up to the employer's discretion. The board ruled that in that precedent, known as Oakland, the decision had allowed employers to, quote, shape their ideal bargaining unit, which is precisely the opposite of what Congress intended with federal labor law. Industry lobbyists, of course, argued that this would make it just too easy for workers to unilaterally, quote, force a firm to engage in collective bargaining. But there would actually still be clear criteria for assessing whether workers do have the right to organize with an existing bargaining unit because they'd have to, of course, demonstrate that under a joint employment structure, um, they shared a community of interests. So this new ruling expands on basic precepts in the law that give workers the right to make an effort on their own to form a union. Um, they would still have to, of course, have a vote and certify the process officially, but this validates their right to at least campaign for unionization, and it's a boost to temporary workers who are often denied not only the right to organize, but the right to a fair wage, uh, the right to many other workplace benefits that their directly hired counterparts are often entitled to. So at least under this board, a new window is open to organize a new precariat class. We'll see what happens, though, under the next administration. And the city of Philadelphia is abuzz with election fever as it prepares to host the Democratic National Convention. 
but the real action is going on outside the convention hall at Philadelphia International Airport, where hundreds of low-wage workers have been struggling for years for fair wages and rights on the job. They recently voted to authorize a strike during the DNC that might disrupt the convention's plans, but it also might disrupt the airline industry's low-wage business model. I spoke with Gabe about the working conditions at the airport, what it says about the low-wage economy today, and what it all means for the Fight for 15 and the coming election season. So we had this this strike vote, and just talk about what the main issues are in the decision to authorize the strike and why the airport workers. So there are three issues, and those issues are pretty straightforward. Uh, these uh, airport workers in Philadelphia want their rights to be respected. They've had their rights routinely violated by their employer, by the contractors, Prime Flight, Prospect, McGinn, and others uh, who work for major American airlines like American at the Philadelphia airport. The second issue that uh, they're trying to have addressed is you know, they want the right to organize for, uh, free from intimidation. Um, as these workers have talked about the working conditions, as they've uh, attempted to do something about them, what they've experienced is illegal retaliation. And uh, you know, some of these companies are actually being investigated by the National Labor Relations Board for violating workers' rights. The third thing that they want is $15. Um, and so you know, the airport workers are m- much like uh, and in many ways been inspired by the fast food workers across this country and that they are workers, predominantly African-American, people of color in Philadelphia, who are working for huge employers, uh, some of whom are national or multinational in scope, and are seeking $15 in a union and to have their rights respected. And that's what the strike is about. Why the airport? is because the working conditions and experiences that people have at the airport. And it's, you know, the Philadelphia airport is no different in that way than what's been happening at airports all across the country. And that, you know, it's a whole industry of subcontracted workers who are predominantly people of color who are being treated terribly because they're subcontracted workers and are not direct employees of the airlines. I understand that these are subcontracted workers and they're actually in the process of, uh, you know, trying to organize for a union. So talk about the dynamics at play here, because this is obviously not a traditional strike in the sense that, you know, they're taking this action. They're campaigning for a union. Yeah. Well, one, let's start the fact that, you know, union workers in Philadelphia are not going on strike uh, because of the DNC over a variety of issues because those workers have now secured the same sorts of things that these workers would like, which is uh, a decent wage, health insurance, uh, being treated, uh, you know, with respect at work, having their rights uh, not be violated, having employers agree to sit down and, and bargain with them over the terms and conditions of their employment. And that's something that, I mean, really tens of thousands of uh, working Philadelphians have, um, and that's something that these workers are trying to get. Um, so these are non-union workers, uh, and that does, I suppose, in some ways make this uh, you know, not a traditional strike. But I think what people often forget um, in, in this country is you know, that once upon a time, um, manufacturing jobs were sweatshops, and you know, workers went on strike for these exact same issues and turned those jobs into good jobs. And uh, you know, that was uh, you know, almost a century ago. Um, and we um, still talk about how much we miss those jobs uh, and uh, the good jobs that those workers created. Um, these are folks who are working for really big employers, 
um, in a huge building, uh, you know, a government-owned building, uh, and their employer is a, just the contractor of an, you know, even bigger corporation. And so, you know, what they're fighting for is not that different than what some workers have fought for in the past. In that context, given the history of these types of non-union sectors becoming unionized, talk about the airport industry. And obviously, this is part of a nationwide effort um, that's focused on uh, labor at airports and this type of subcontracting and sort of outsourcing of work that is characteristic of this industry, as well as many other low-wage industries. Discuss the significance of that as your target. So, you know, I think what we've seen, as we've seen all, all across the country, uh, is that you, know, you have these huge, huge employers and industries within the service sector, which is where most people work and is where most people are going to work. Um, most new jobs that have been created in this country are in the service sector, and at this point, most Americans work in the service sector. Um, and service sector employers are now on the same size or larger than most manufacturing and industrial employers and are certainly uh, more profitable. But as that's happened, um, workers' wages have been stagnant, people's rights, uh, you know, they used to experience in the job have gone away, the, the things that working class people used to experience, healthcare, um, perhaps retirement, a decent wage have sort of evaporated. Um, and, but that's not because people aren't working and that's not because people aren't working for really huge profitable companies. It's because people are treated a totally different way at work um, in the service sector than the way people have uh, now been treated manufacturing for the you know, past several generations. And so uh, the airport industry is, a, is a, another example of this, where you, know, you have a, a model that's based on um, having large employers compete with each other to pay and treat people as poorly as possible. And in return for doing that, they're awarded contracts by other big employers in order to provide a service. And so, uh, you know, what workers have started doing uh, is questioning that system and saying, I deserve to be paid a decent wage. I deserve to be treated uh, like a human being. Um, and I don't think, frankly, it's any accident that in many of these sectors, uh, when you go and, and look at who's being treated this way, it almost always seems to be workers of color. It seems to be, for some reason, um, employers... Uh, seem to feel like building industries on the backs of uh, workers, African-American workers in particular in Philadelphia, that are incredibly profitable industries, uh, you know, nationally. But paying them poverty-level wages is, you know, is an acceptable practice. And, you know, we think that is one of the root causes of the economic inequality and racial disparity that you see in cities like Philadelphia. It's not like um, African-American workers aren't working. Uh, you know, there's a thousand jobs that's uh, it, that people work very hard at um, every day. And it just happens that somehow it's socially acceptable to treat these workers this kind of way um, versus other kinds of workers. Um, so we focus on this industry uh, and other industries like it because we think uh, if they change, it'll have a dramatic economic impact. I mean, imagine if a 1,000 airport workers uh, in Philadelphia who all live in the neighborhoods most in need of good jobs, if these jobs transform from what they are now to jobs that pay $15 an hour, that would have a, a huge economic impact on those neighborhoods. And we've seen that um, to other industries. Uh, you know, in Philadelphia and really every city in the Northeast and m most of the cities in the uh, upper Midwest and the West Coast, uh, service sector workers and property services, janders, 
building engineers um, have transformed their jobs from what had been a minimum wage or like $10 uh, an hour jobs for engineers into jobs that, you know, in Philadelphia, a, a janitor cleaning an office building makes uh, $16 to $18 an hour with family health insurance and a pension. Um, in fact, the only large building in Philadelphia where the landowner has uh, made a decision to uh, have the sort of bottom bid, lowest wage system, is the Philadelphia Airport. Ninety percent of the large buildings in Philadelphia, uh, both commercial office, residential, uh, and uh, and higher ed, have said um, we're going to make sure that the uh, contracted workers in our facilities are making a, a decent wage with a good standard or on a path to get there. So part of what's made the airport such a focal point in Philly is because when you look at the skyline in Philadelphia, um, most of the contracted workers and most of what you'll see are in fact making a family sustaining wage and good benefits. What is the level of union representation in this sector and perhaps you know more specifically at the Philly airport in general? Are there union workers and, and where are they at this airport? And talk about their conditions. So there are union workers at the airport, and they are those who are the employees of the airlines. And, you know, I, we don't represent those folks, but my perception is uh, that uh, using American as an example, that I don't think American Airlines does or would treat its employees the same way that uh, American Airlines contractors treat their employees. Um, as far as I'm aware, uh, you know, the folks who uh, work for the airlines still have decent union jobs. Um, have at least their legal rights being respected in the job. Um, and that has been, you know, had been the norm in that industry. Um, and, you know, what happened here is, is the airlines decided to outsource various job functions to contractors uh, and then essentially set up a system of uh, the lowest bid, uh, it appears. And so you have contractors almost competing on who can treat workers worse that get the most work uh, in an industry where the Folks hiring the contractors uh, would uh, treat their own employees in a totally different way. So far, as you noted, this model of outsourced employment is both um, a product of a lack of unionization and also perpetuates a lack of unionization. What are some of the challenges that you have experienced as a union seeking to penetrate the sector and uh, get these workers organized? I mean, I think that the you know the main issue is that w workers have to be given the actual right to choose, um, and then if workers have the right to choose, uh, then they will make whatever is the most rational choice in front of them. Um, and, and in real life, in this industry, and in others, uh, you know, because you know employers routinely violate the law, and so you know you in theory have the right to organize a union. But if you've exercised that right and you're being fired for it, and in order for you to get your job back, you have to go to court for or to the labor board for a year, and then eventually you get your job back, you know, and, and that is uh, the way your right is, in quotes, sort of respected, then, you know, obviously that's incredibly discouraging to people, particularly low wage workers who are completely living check to check and are just trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Um, and I think that's the obstacle. Uh, the primary obstacle. On the other hand, when workers uh, stick together and fight, they actually do win. I mean, the service sector jobs in Philadelphia and all those other buildings once was non-union, 
and uh, people got together and fought, and they won. And that's been true in, for janitorial and other workers in, you know, city after city after city. I mean, uh, and I think uh, that will be true with airport workers. And in New York and in other places, uh, workers have won uh, and have actually begun. There's 7,000 subcontracted um, airport workers in New York City who are bargaining uh, for their first contracts right now. Um, so it is possible to win, and uh, and you know, these workers have shown that it's possible. Uh, this didn't just start now, right? Um, the, the workers did not decide to just strike because the DNC was coming into Philadelphia. They have been fighting uh, for these same three basic things, uh, having their rights respected, $15 an hour, and a union for three years. Uh, when they started, uh, some of them made as little as $5 an hour, were uh, wheelchair tenants who uh, were held to be tipped employees, although they would be terminated if they asked for a tip. Uh, they went out, they fought, they had some much smaller scale work stoppages. They went down to city council they uh, and got a lot of support. And the city passed a law uh, that required that the wage standard at the airport be moved to $12 an hour. And because it was the law, the city then imposed that standard on the airlines when the city renegotiated their lease. Uh, and so, you know, these workers have already turned their jobs from, you know, what had been, uh, again, as little as $5 in minimum wage jobs into jobs with the, you know, minimum standard is 12. Um, that's a real victory. You know, the problem is, is if your employer then um, terminates you for going down to city council and asking that they raise your wages uh, and your rights are being violated, then what do you want? You know, and that's what this next piece of the fight is about. Mm -hmm. Are there any other legislative mechanisms that you plan to campaign for along with this? And how has basic enforcement of that been going? And, and you know, what recourse do workers have when that city council law is not respected? Yeah, I mean, so the $12 an hour has now been broadly uh, followed. They at first attempted to lower that for wheelchair tenants and other folks they deemed to be tipped employees, but they just recently conceded that point, so folks are now getting the 12. Um, you know, the uh, the recourse that workers have um, when they're in these situations is the one that these workers have just taken, which is to, uh, you know, strike and use their collective power to try and force uh, circumstances to change, um, which is, you know, what they're doing. Um, you know, the there's been a new administration, a new mayor, uh, you know, who has, uh, you know, who campaigned on being supportive of the plight of airport workers and similar workers in Philly and um, has been good in trying to make sure whatever the laws are are enforced. Um, ultimately, though, this, uh, you know, what's happening at the DNC it's a fight between workers and their employer. And, you know, the employers could sit down and resolve that issue with the workers really anytime they wanted to. It's not that hard to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to start following the law and not violating my workers' rights today, and then I'm not going to do it again tomorrow or the next day until I build up enough of a track record with the employers, employees that they think that I'm changing my ways. You know, it's not that hard to sit down with workers and say, uh, okay, under the law, you're supposed to have the right to organize if you want to. So I'm going to agree to make sure that that's up to you and not up to me and, and not interfere with your rights or threaten, intimidate, or terminate any workers for trying to exercise that right. Um, and, you know, frankly, in this industry, it's so profitable, it's not that hard to say, 
let's sit down and talk about a path to $15 an hour. Um, so all those things could happen um, if the industry, if the employers in it wanted to make that happen. Um, uh, we hope that's a choice that they'll make, obviously. Um, but I, I think this is now year three of these workers fighting for these changes, and I think they finally said, you know, enough is enough. We're, you know, we're going to have to show how strong we are on a like different level and in different scale than what we showed in the past to try and get, you know, more change. Of course, we have seen that in New York and in other places where there have been uh, pretty successful campaigns around airport workers. And so let's go to the timing of this <laughs> particular strike authorization. How are you connecting this to the DNC? And, you know, how are you connecting it to the DNC in terms of the issues? You know, obviously, labor issues are going to be raised and at play at the convention and, and well beyond for the rest of the campaign. Talk about your perspective as a union in terms of how labor issues have played out during this election season. So look, I, I mean, I think this is—I think this is a very good thing for the DNC uh, because the DNC itself has been about, uh, and hopefully will be about, uh, the fight for 15 and about workers having a, a rights to organize, and that you know, trying to find a solution to the vast economic inequality in America. And you know, what these workers are fighting for is ex exactly what the Democratic primary has been about. I mean, the primary has been a contest between two people each competing to say which one will do the most to help working people. Uh, and so, uh, you know, here you have a group of workers who are been fighting for themselves for years. Um, this isn't some sort of hijinks they came up with because they heard the DNC was coming into town. This has been their fight. Um, and, you know, it's a group of workers where the DNC, uh, you know, can be strong advocates if they so choose. Um, but we think, uh, regardless of, uh, you know, this is no different than what the DNC is fighting for itself. You know, uh, uh, I mean, fifteen dollars an hour in a union is part of the DNC platform. Uh, so uh, we think that it's a great thing. Um, uh, you know, this is all you know coming together in this way. Obviously, SCAU has nationally um, been uh, fighting for fifteen, supporting that fight um, for fast food workers and airport workers and others. Uh, you know, for years, and having uh, having this happen in, in Philly uh, is uh, you know symbolically important in many ways. This is uh, you know where the country was founded. Um, so, and we've heard a lot from delegates who are very, very, very supportive. I mean, we've gotten so many calls from delegates and elected officials, and those calls have have really all been you know what can we do to support these workers? And so, uh, I we think it's great. I think it'll be, uh, you know, we think it'll be a good convention, and we think that the issues these workers are fighting for is exactly what this convention will be about. In terms of the fight for 15 and just uh, getting to that $15 level and, and getting the candidates to say the $15, it was a challenge to advance that to the level of the, um, to the platform that finally was adopted, and there is $15 language in there. Um, you know, there's been back and forth over how strong that language is. Talk about the lead up to that and what it means, I guess, to have some uh, some representation of the fight for 15 in the platform. And does it ultimately matter? Where where do you go from there? Yeah, so I, I would I'd start out by saying um, $15 an hour uh, is not super controversial in the neighborhoods where our members and airport workers live. Uh, they support $15 an hour as a national minimum wage. And um, 
the DNC is the political party that most claims to represent um, those people in those neighborhoods. So it was not without controversy and difficult, as I understand, um, you know, adopting $15 an hour. But, uh, you know, frankly, um, $15 an hour is not controversial to working people in Philadelphia. I think $15 an hour is uh, something that uh, some elected officials and um, and some corporations just, you know, need to make the cultural adjustment to. Um, I, what I think it means for being in the, in the Democratic platform, I think, is really important because, uh, you know, it sends a message to working people like airport workers and others that the party is going to fight for them. And, you know, there's a, the other party is campaigning on the idea that uh, wages are too high, uh, I think, as Donald Trump has said, uh, in America. Uh, you know, I think it's really important that the Democratic Party lay out actual solutions that actually impact working people. And uh, we'd argue, uh, you know, nothing they could do would be more meaningful than uh, raising the minimum wage of $15 an hour for, uh, you know, economic inequality in the country. Um, so I think it means a lot to be in the platform. You know, I think, uh, you know, I, when we first started talking about $15 an hour for fast food workers in New York three years ago, people acted like it was ridiculous. Um, since then, uh, after three years, uh, fast food workers in New York are going to all get $15 an hour. The minimum wage is going to get listed to $15 an hour in New York, California, and other places. I mean, there's really tens of millions of workers who are now being moved to that standard. So, you know, it's gone from being uh, viewed as sort of a ridiculous number uh, to now uh, something that uh, is actually happening and is getting more and more momentum. And, uh, and, and the reason for that is because it addresses the core need that people have in this country, which is uh, to be able to work and provide for your family. You know, if, if through work you cannot provide for yourself or for your family, then you know you cannot have a democracy and you cannot have an economy that works for people and you, you know you can't have a, a stable uh, society. And so, uh, you know that's a lot of uh, what this is about. And, and the lives that uh, and work of the airport workers in Philadelphia, you know, really. I can't think of a better example of that. I mean, these are folks working one, two, sometimes three jobs who are working for huge corporations uh, who are providing a critical service at a government-owned building um, in a democratic city are 90% African-American or African immigrants. Uh, and, uh, you know, changing what's happening to them um, uh, honoring their fight to make their jobs matter and their work matters and being able to provide for themselves and for their families and for their communities is, uh, is in, incredibly important. And these workers are uh, taking this risk because this is a very brave thing to do, I think are incredible examples for the Democratic Party itself. It's going to have to be willing to fight if it wants to win. Publicly, SEIU on the national level has um, endorsed uh, Hillary Clinton's candidacy, and but going beyond who is the actual candidate, I mean, obviously, labor was one of the big divides, I guess, between Sanders and uh, Clinton, at least in terms of the way the campaigning was playing out. You know, now that there is a nominee, how do you expect, not just up to Election Day, but 
thereafter to keep some of those campaign promises on the radar and, and make sure that it turns into actual you know, material gains for the labor movement. So, I, I mean, I, I think, uh, and it's obviously it's a complicated question um, because, I, I mean, there certainly has been a history, uh, not naming any particular name, but with uh, elected officials um, sort of seeking the support of workers and, you know, unions, and then once being elected, uh, you know, forgetting about those promises or, or those things. Um, I think what we've learned from that experience, uh, you know, maybe should have learned faster, but I think what we've learned from that experience is, you know, you cannot stop campaigning uh, the day after an election. And, you know, these workers aren't going on strike uh, as part of a electoral, uh, you know, thing related to Hillary Clinton, right? These workers are going on strike to fight for themselves and for their family. Um, it is up to elected officials who are going to workers like that and saying, support me, to figure out what they can do to actually support those workers. And you know, what we're seeing now is across the country, on a local level, you know, many elected officials are actually taking action to try and, and do that. Um, in even in smaller cities, you know, in Pittsburgh, uh, the mayor there, Bill Peduto, has uh, has made it uh, a requirement of getting economic development money from the city that you have to respect workers' rights, service sector workers, and others that you have to pay you know certain wage standards, and to using the levers of government to try and push for jobs to be the best jobs they can. And, you know, the private sector in Pittsburgh has responded to that by making those standards be the standards for, you know, all the contractor workers they hire, as an example. And that's created a, a big base, a, a disproportionately high base of good service sector jobs um, in a small city that lost its manufacturing but is now booming uh, and has, uh, uh, you know, has a, a, a big base of family sustaining service sector jobs that can't be outsourced or, you know, shipped to Mexico as, as part of that boom. Um, you know, we would hope and expect that, uh, uh, that Secretary Clinton will look for ways to do the same thing on the federal level and will push. Uh, you know, Congress is so gerrymandered um, that it's, it's set up to be incredibly resistant to change. Um, but there are many things that a, a president can do, uh, you know, to try and push to raise wages and benefits. And I think we're seeing at a state and local level, you know, more and more of a push to do that. Um, speaking of local level action, uh, many of the gains that the Fight for 15 and related campaigns have seen in recent times is that uh, they are able to get local laws passed. Um, well, you know, federal standards and, and laws kind of stagnate. Can you talk about the role of cities and the legislation, um, referenda, other measures that people have been able to take on a local level and how that feeds into not just the material conditions of the workers, but also uh, movement building in general? How do you mobilize on a local level and how does that ultimately build a critical mass for change at the national level? So I think it's, I mentioned an incredible contrast of what you see happening, you know, on the on the ground in cities versus you know the federal government, where it, you know, the the debate in cities like Philadelphia and in, in other cities, uh, you know, really does seem to be much more grounded in how are we going to create good jobs, how are we going to address issues of racial inequality. I, even 
uh, obviously the in, incredibly, uh, you know, the profiling of, of people and, and murder of uh, of African Americans. I, I think you're seeing cities really try and deal and wrestle with those issues, and you're seeing mayors, uh, you know, really in, in many cities trying to dig deep into what those issues are and trying to find a way to uh, get to some sort of just solution, and, and that's it's taken on a, a wide range of forms, but that's been true around, uh, you know, the fight 15, I think, you know, the only places where we've actually, you know, we've seen um, any real response uh, you know, to what's gone on with police and the African-American community has been at a, you know, city level, although, you know, in some cities it's fallen very, very short. Um, meanwhile, at a federal level, like, you know, in some ways the debate is, like, uh, how do we stop like one of the craziest guys in America from like getting nuclear weapons and being the president versus you know who's who's someone who's you know going to try and make the country keep going forward? I mean, it just feels like the debates are so separated in some ways, um, and the substance is separate in some ways. And so at a local level, um, it's really been critical in cities, uh, which are you know uh, even more than ever sort of the economic engines of the country. Um, to try and, and elect uh, uh, officials who are, you know, want to figure out how to use the levers of government to create good jobs um, and you know, for people. And I think you've seen many, many acts of that from Seattle, um, you know, SeaTac, uh, again, you know, New York. I uh, started state level Governor Cuomo, uh, and De Blasio has been working on those things. Uh, Pittsburgh, and you know. I think this mayor has just uh, passed the first, and Philadelphia has just passed the first, you know, soda tax, which is using the money to fund uh, pre-K. So you are seeing, you know, really significant policy uh, issues moving forward at a city level, and then again at a at a federal level, it's just, uh, you know, this is just we're all throwing our hands up and saying, is this really who's in charge? And, you know, just with the Fight for 15 itself, I mean, you know, we, we have seen uh, city after city and uh, and now uh, whole states, right, going for a $15 minimum wage. And in terms and of... And the states that are the most supported out, the states that are, you know, have really been the, the... I mean, New York and California are, you know, the and the sort of global economy, those are the kind of the centers of the economics, you know, market for the United States. So it's it's a... You know, seeing those states, you know, take the leadership and move forward is a really strong message to everybody's house because, you know, these are the, you know, the two most populous states, the, you know, the states that are the largest financial centers for various industries, you know, in the country and in the world. And, and then uh, and their elected officials making that statement, uh, you know, is, is incredibly meaningful and I think sends a strong message to states all across the country. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's, it's not just SeaTac, right? <laughs> you know, which was that, right? Um, which was actually another big airport-based economy, right? So uh, I have a lot of love for SeaTac and Sodom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pioneering. <laughs> a lot of those local initiatives, they go well beyond wages, right? They're looking at things like, uh, like you were saying before, like uh, universal pre-K. There, uh, you know, lots of mobilizations going around for things like paid sick days and fair scheduling legislation, right? How how does that intersect with what airport workers are facing, for instance? you know, just the, the general um, condition of precarity facing these workers, what are some things that they would want to see perhaps in a union contract? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that those are, I think you talked on a number of the issues. It's, uh, you know, paid sick leave. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, the ability to if, have health insurance um, that you can afford. Um, I mean, for the airport, some of these workers, if they, let's say, they can work another job to afford to buy health insurance, uh, if they, when they're sick, they are written up, even if they are able to provide uh, documentation that they were at the doctor or that their child was ill or, you know, you name it. Uh, employers uh, write them up and discipline them anyway, you know, because it, the idea is not to, you know, treat workers fairly or retain people. The idea seems to be to churn a profit for service at any cost to your own workers. Um, and uh, you know, so yes, I, I mean, I think you're seeing a, a lot of cities uh, where they're able. Um, attempting to pass all sorts of laws. I mean, in a state like Pennsylvania, and in, I think in, in many sort of similar battleground states, um, where you have cities like Pittsburgh and Philly, where there's a lot of strong political will to do uh, take those sorts of measures, um, you know, one huge obstacle is the state government itself, which seeks to preempt cities uh, from that kind of local autonomy. Um, uh, because the state governments are run by uh, at least legislatures by Republicans. Um, and I guess it's sort of, it's always ironic when Republicans at the state level uh, who speak so much about uh, they don't want big government control from the federal government um, attempt to use control from the state government to prevent cities from being able to do things like paid sick leave, uh, which in Pennsylvania they've routinely tried to do or, or threaten. You know, small government only when it works. Uh, it happens. <laughs> small government when it, uh, you know, when it helps rich people. Right, right. Looking beyond election day, what what do you think we can learn from the fight for fifteen? Not just unions, but non-union workers and and just the labor movement more broadly. This many years on, and God knows how many more years to go. What are some lasting lessons we can take away? I mean, I think one big lesson, uh, I'd say maybe there are two that I think are just pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, one is fight for what's fighting for. I mean, it, 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 why have the fight for 10? You know, I mean, I fight for 15 because fight for something that's meaningful that changes people's lives. And, and I think when we began that fight and sort of got into that fight, um, you know, we went in that already having been the most successful union in terms of organizing workers. Um, in the country since the 1950s. I mean, we're the uh, grown union, union that doubled in size at a time when the rest of the labor movement um, went the other direction. Um, and I mean, could have made the choice to say, well, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing in our own small industries and, you know, maybe the rest of the world will collapse, but we'll be fine. And, and instead said, um, what are we here doing? Like, what are we fighting for? What's the purpose of the organization? And uh, and uh, inside the purpose of the organization is to try and fight for all workers to get make a decent wage. And so fighting for 15 was sort of choosing to fight for something worth fighting for. I think that's a lesson that people from the DNC should you know should take. Um, the second is is that when you fight, you know you you do tend to win, uh, especially a lot more than if you don't fight. Um, and again, when the fight for 15 started. Uh, with fast food workers in New York, people, you know, acted like it was sort of crazy instead of a wacky thing coming out of New York. And instead of a year, you had hundreds of cities uh, going on strike for $15 an hour. And now you have the most populous states in America 
passing legislation raising wages to fifteen dollars an hour, and you're seeing workers in industries beyond just fast food, airports, home care workers, other or people are fighting for fifteen. And uh, you know, I think there's a lot for the DNC to draw on from that, which is you know, fight for those things which really make a difference in people's lives, and then actually go fight. Mm-hmm. And just to round up. Um we're talking on Monday, um, and uh, this podcast will go up Friday. What should we expect in terms of times to look out for when things might happen, if things happen, uh, you know, come the following week? All right. So tomorrow there's going to be a, a, a large demonstration at the airport where the workers will see to sort of give a preview of what the strike will look like. Um, and because I think, you know, there are, Hasn't been a strike of this size at the airport. There are um, groups of workers of this kind haven't gone on a strike like this at this scale anywhere in the country that I'm aware of. Um, and so, you know, before the DNC starts, they want to um, and they want to make sure and send along and send a strong message to the employers, um, so the employers understand, you know, exactly what's coming. Um, uh, the workers will uh, will strike. Uh, and, and I would expect that they'll strike when they think they have the, you know, the, will have the most impact. And uh, uh, you know, I think what people can expect is, uh, you know, thousands of workers uh, you know, walk into a job and, and standing united. And I think you can expect there's a lot of delegates from the U, from the DNC um, being supportive of these workers. Yeah, you know, I mean, what these workers are fighting for is what. Um, so many people who are delegates of the DNC support and work for uh, in their various capacities, you know, in their own lives. And um, that's what we're hearing from folks. And I got to say, it's been really, uh, it's been really meaningful to the workers, uh, you know, to have DNC delegates saying, um, oh, we get it. We understand where you're coming from and we're with you and we support you. And what can we do to, what can we do to support you? That was Gabe Morgan, vice president of SEIU 32BJ, talking about the Philadelphia airport workers. And we're going to hear now from Laquanda Higgins. She is a worker with one of the contractors at the Philadelphia airport, Prospect. She claims that she was unfairly fired because she was wearing a union t-shirt and actively campaigning for the potential strike next week. She officially filed a National Labor Relations Board complaint and is waiting to hear back what happens with that. In the meantime, she says she's going to keep on organizing. Talk about what you're experiencing at work right now. Basically, I filed a complaint because I was asking questions about my pay stubs and my paychecks because um, it seems like my pay my paycheck is always being cut short, but I have no proof because I have no access to my pay stubs. So I went inside the main office to question them about my pay stubs, and they just really gave me a hard time only because... I wanted to know, basically, I just wanted to get help, and they wouldn't help me. Mm. And uh, when was that? This was yesterday, Wednesday. Did you vote to authorize the strike? Yes, I did. I voted to authorize the strike, and I also participated in the march. Is the complaint right now part of that organizing that you're doing uh, ahead of the potential strike? Yes. Mm -hmm. I feel like I was being picked on because I was a part of the strike. 
This happened after my boss knew I was post-strike. What do you hope will be the outcome of your complaint? Uh, I would like to run from my job back and to also form a union and get higher pay. What are your working conditions like? Well, as of right now, I, I no longer have a job, but before um, I left, they just, they sing, they're singling everyone out that's post-strike and that wants higher wages. They're really trying to pick us out one by one. So have you been officially terminated? Uh, my badge was taken, but I have no termination letter or anything. And so you you basically don't even know if you're still employed. With exactly. Yeah. I called my supervisor and I explained to him the situation about who took my badge. And he said he would get back to me. And that was over 24 hours ago and I never heard anything yet. What motivated you to organize? Um, I noticed the unfair, unfairness in management and communication. Just everything seemed wrong. So that made me want to stand up and speak on what should be right. What do you want the convention delegates to know as they uh, come into Philadelphia International Airport? I want them to know that everything that they're seeing is, you know how they say, everything is glitter, everything that glitter is not gold. So I want them to see that we are being mistreated and they really don't care for us if we're there or not. I just want them to know this. The workers who are fighting for 15 in a union right now, uh, you know, that that was incorporated, uh, language about that was incorporated into the Democratic National Platform, but politicians have had a history of not reflecting what working people are really caring about and really needing. Uh, are you confident um, at all about this election season and what might happen afterwards? I, I just have hope. I'm hoping that everything goes not my way, but just in the way of the working class because we're unappreciated. Like, nobody appreciates us at all. And they don't understand the struggles that we go through every day just to survive. So are are you going to be uh, out there on the picket lines? Yes, I will. Even if I do or do not have a job, I'm still going to be out there because it's not just for me, it's for my children, and it's for everybody else that works at the airport that's scared to speak up. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. The part where we talk about the pieces we read and wish we had written, but alas, did not. My pick for the week is Life Hacks of the Poor and Aimless by Laurie Penny at The Baffler. Here, Laurie Penny explores the idea of self-care as a means of addressing the problems of economic insecurity and social frustration facing many young millennials of modest means. She challenges what might be called the self-care industrial complex, the rise of a whole subculture, industry, and ideology of therapy, self-help, uh, safe space, meditation, detox, etc., etc., 
Penny asks, can all this positive thinking be actively harmful? Carl Saderstrom and Andre Spicer, authors of The Wellness Syndrome, certainly think so, arguing that obsessive ritualization of self-care comes at the expense of collective engagement, collapsing every social problem into a personal quest for the good life. Wellness, they declare, has become an ideology, close quote. The focus on being happy, which newly deposed former Prime Minister of Britain David Cameron called his happiness agenda, maybe not so happy anymore, is in many ways a neoliberal way of thinking, or perhaps even a lifestyle of neoliberalism. Everything becomes about you, and also it manages to be incredibly ego-driven and even self-negating, even self-degrading, by compelling one to refrain from blaming social causes for their social ills and seeking redemption and solutions by looking inward, thus retrenching from the social. Penny observes that this plays out in some fairly hard ways in the workplace every day. Chin-up becomes a mantra, then an ethos, and then an exercise in self-deception. She writes, quote, The well-being ideology is a symptom of a broader political disease. The rigors of both work and worklessness, the colonization of every public space by private money, the precarity of daily living, and the growing impossibility of building any sort of community maroon each of us in our lonely struggle to survive, close quote. Self-care, I would say, is in a way self-hating because it causes us to internalize our woes and leads to retrenchment from politics, from activism. And ironic, then, that the trope of self-care is so often tossed around in the social service and activist communities as if we, the underpaid serfs of the nonprofit industrial complex, must compensate for the material drudgery that our livelihoods seek to indulge in by turning our lifestyles into escapist fantasies of purity and self-containment. There's something very bourgeois about this. It seems there's something sad about the ritualistic quality of these practices. Penny writes, quote, There's a reason that the rituals of well-being and self-care are followed with the precision of a cult. Do this and you will be saved. Do this and you will be safe. It is a practice of faith. Close quote. So before I go on to sound like a total killjoy, I will acknowledge that Penny is under no illusion that the opposite of self-care is at all healthy for you, especially not for the people who live a life of ascetic self-deprivation or radical self-discipline on principle. We need a happy medium between punishing ourselves through suffering and pacifying ourselves through a different kind of suffering in the form of punishing regimes of self-worship. Penny argues... Quote, on the one hand, Instagram happiness gurus make me want to drown myself in a kale smoothie. On the other, I'm sick and tired of seeing the most brilliant people I know, the fighters and artists and mad radical thinkers whose lives work might actually improve the world, treat themselves and each other in ludicrously awful ways with the excuse, implicit or explicit, that any other approach to life is counter-revolutionary. So maybe the problem is that we as leftists fall into the trap of overthinking, which is... I guess, its own form of self-sabotage. We theorize our suffering into an easy narrative. Whether the solution we reach for is yoga or marching into a cloud of tear gas. I know, I know, this is all very meta. The problem is, when these supposed solutions start to counterbalance our own intuitive sense of values, that's the opposite of self-care. It's self-contradiction, or at worst, self-negation in the service of some fantasy of self-affirmation. Penny ends by trying to reconcile these two ideas by showing how self-love can actually be actively radical. 
quote, the harder, duller work of self-care is about the everyday impossible effort of getting up and getting through your life in a world that would prefer you cowed and compliant. A world whose abusive logic wants you to see no structural problems, but only problems with yourself or with those more marginalized and vulnerable than you are. Real love, the kind that soothes and lasts, is not a feeling, but a verb, an action. So between schadenfreude and fake ecstasy, is there a happy medium? I would say an activist method of self-love, and I'm not saying we all practice this or even I do. I would say that it is not an article of faith, but a spiritual practice, not a ritual indulgence as an end in itself, but rather an active soul-searching and collective exchange of ideas that enriches us in the doing, not in the end product. Making love as a path to transformation, rather than just a blind, visceral grab for some kind of comfort, may be a way to do care that does ultimately affirm the good in all of us and in ourselves and maybe even in this world, even though that world may make genuine happiness seem elusive on all fronts sometimes. Maybe the answer lies in maintaining a realistic kind of optimism rather than just escapism. And that'll do it for this episode of Belabored. You can reach us as always on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can reach us by email at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Please let us know if you have any questions, comments, gripes about your boss, strikes that you're planning, uh, frustration with the election season that you'd like us to know about. We want to hear it all. And we'll see you in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 